reading this morning comes out of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8, through 6, verse 12. Hold on to your hats. If you see in the province oppression of the poor and violation of the justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. This is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, then he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years, twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, and yet his appetite's not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man who have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes and the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, that he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what advantage to the man. For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? This is God's word. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Let me pray and ask the Lord to say something through this amazing text. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We know that it is there for a purpose, and even though at times it is confusing and dark, Lord, it is designed to direct us toward You, to reveal our need for You, to reveal that we are drowning and yet we won't admit it that we have such a desperate need for rescue. So Lord, I pray this morning 
You remind us of the Rescuer. You remind us of Jesus who has come and told us that nothing in this world will satisfy but Him. For He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Jesus, I pray You'll be here with us this morning. That You will speak to us by Your Spirit the words that we each need to hear. Speak to our heart the words of conviction, the words of comfort. Because Father, it is, we confess, our flesh who denies that this text is about us. It's about somebody else. Father, speak to us individually and speak to us as your people. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I mean, it said mother in there at one point, if you noticed that. I thought that was helpful. Well, as we, uh, this is how we roll. It is, thank you, welcome. If you're new, you're like, really? There's not a Mother's Day special sermon? No, I typically don't like to do that. Wherever the Lord has us, He has us, and this is where He has us. So thank you uh, for being with us. Happy Mother's Day. You work harder than anyone else ever does in this world, and the uh, joys and the uh, successes of families uh, is dependent upon you. And I know that, so thank you so much. Um, but we're going to get a little darker, and hopefully get lighter. But we've been working through this disturbing book, but I think it's a wonderfully honest book, Ecclesiastes. And the whole point of it is that he is trying to reveal the emptiness of everything under the sun. And so he uses common phrases frequently throughout this text. When he says, all is vanity, and, and some will say all is futility, depending upon your translation, When it says all is vanity, he means that every part of life is like vapor. Like a cold morning that you're breathing and you see it. And you try to grasp it and it's gone. has no substance to it. And he also says that all is vanity under the sun. So not only is every part of life um, like vapor, every aspect of life cannot be enjoyed apart from God. So all is empty, all is vapor under the sun. Everything is empty apart from God, is the bottom line. And so he endeavors to prove that by observing the world, a world that we agree is as messed up as he observes. So last week we approached, or we we learned, I should say, that when you hear this statement, all of life is empty apart from God, it's like, okay, let's go to God. And he says, yeah, but we don't even approach God right. Even if we go to God, he says, we got to be careful how we go to Him because we fake it. Our religion, our spirituality can be just as empty, that we talk a lot and we don't listen to God, that we go to take from God and we don't go to give anything. So immediately now, so this is last, we just read, after challenging our worship last week, challenging our spirituality, what's the next thing he talks about? Wealth. That seems strange. You see, Solomon built the greatest temple of worship in history. Why was it the greatest? Because God designed it. And Solomon was one of the wealthiest men in history. So he built this amazing place of worship, and he was super wealthy, like super, super wealthy. Solomon the second wisest man under Jesus in all of history seems to make a connection between our wealth and our worship. 
We wrongly, and I think very naturally, when we all do this, we segment our lives into that which is spiritual and that which is not spiritual. Money often falls in the not spiritual category. As often do relationships or our job or whatever, we kind of pigeonhole spirituality onto a Sunday morning or to a little moment of devotions. We don't look at all of life as spiritual like we ought. Money is spiritual. Wealth is spiritual. I say money because people can maybe, uh, that can appeal to them a little bit more. They can connect that more. We say wealth, and well, I'm not wealthy. But money is spiritual, and our disposition towards it reveals our hearts. Did you know that? The wisest man who ever lived, Jesus, who was much more than a man, you know, he talked about money a lot. 16 of the 38 parables were concerned with how to handle money and possessions. In the Gospels, an amazing 1 out of 10, 288 verses in all, deal directly with the subject of money. The Bible offers 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 verses on faith, more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. Jesus talked about money and possessions more than He talked about heaven, hell, sexuality, even love. But it's not that Jesus spoke about it. It's what He says about it that's maybe a little more challenging or disturbing to our souls because He connected it to our souls. Once when Jesus was teaching, you may remember the story of the rich young ruler. A young man comes up to him and says, what good deed do I have to do to inherit eternal life? How do I get into heaven? Basically. And Jesus said, obey the commandments. Be obedient. And the young man responded, well, I've kept all of them. Right. What else do I got to do? I checked all those boxes. So he said, all right. If you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And so he walks away, and Jesus turns to his disciples. And he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of God. Again, I tell you, so he says it again. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, let's just take this completely, like literally what Jesus says here in the sense that riches make it harder for someone to enter the kingdom of God. Having lots of money and possession makes it harder to enter the kingdom of God. Raise your hand if you live in the wealthiest nation on earth. Want to know one of the biggest struggles with our culture? Money. Yet despite Jesus' like really direct warnings, really plain warnings, we all like to be a little more rich. We just have a little bit more. Of course, none of us actually describes ourselves as well off. Few of us would consider ourselves wealthy or not rich like this guy 
I don't have great possessions like this guy. My experience confirms what pastor and author Tim Keller once wrote. He said, Jesus warns people far more often about greed than about sex, and yet almost no one thinks they are guilty of it. Isn't that true? The last time you had someone come and say, I think I might be greedy. I'm really coveting a lot. It's pretty obvious when someone commits adultery, not so much when they're greedy. More than once, Jesus connected our relationship to God with our relationship to money. So there's, there's some kind of connection there. Once, Jesus, you remember the parable of the soils, right? In it, Jesus described how the Word of God impacts different people differently. Rocky paths or paths and rocky ground and thorns and good soil, all, all of them receive God's Word, right? just goes out and spreads out and different responses happen to God's Word. I don't know if you've ever read it carefully enough to notice that in this parable, he describes the thorns and he says this, I think I might have this. I'm supposed to use this clicky thing. I don't know if it's going to work. Oh, hey, look at that. It works. I feel so powerful now. Here's what he wrote. As for what is sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The deceitfulness of riches. Not even the possession of riches. The promises of riches. The lies of riches. It seems as if wealth tells us lies that compete with the truth of God. With the Word of God. What's more, Jesus warned us that here's some little phrases He says. Our heart follows what we treasure. We cannot serve both God and money. He just happened to use those two. That anyone who will, renounce, will not renounce all he has cannot be my disciple. Like those are the things Jesus said over and over again. So Jesus is teaching everything Solomon had shared centuries earlier. That money under the sun is empty. We will talk about three things then this morning. One is, what does it look like to have wealth without God? And the second is to look at what it look like to have wealth with God. But there's also a third category, which I'll describe as wealth in God. And they're different. It kind of gets progressively better. So if we look in verses 8 to 17 you'll say that Solomon in this text speaks about money for money's sake. We'll call that wealth without God. In fact, the name of God in these, whatever, 8 to 17, is about 10 verses, um, you'll see that it doesn't actually uh, say the name of God at all, ever. Now it's not working, Joel. Come on. I'll just have to have you click it through. If you look at verses 8, uh, beginning verse 10, I believe, it says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? 
So Solomon argues that the lover of money, for the guy who loves money, which I'm sure is no one here, but for the lover of money, enough is always just a little bit more. Okay? But he says, as the size of that person's personal kingdom grows, so does its demands. You know that, right? When you're single and you had no pennies to your name and, and you had nothing, you maybe have a career, you start having stuff, and next thing you know, you're shoving all kinds of things in storage units because your house isn't big enough to hold all your junk, right? And you got to take care of it, and, and you got suddenly kids, and you got mouths to feed, and all these things, like things grow. So someone who's devoted to building a kingdom, like a really well, like, all, you got servants, you got people to feed, you got stuff to take care of. Like it just gets it gets more and more expensive. So he's trying to say success is a little bit of a seduction that leads to slavery, slavery. And he says, and a little loss of sleep, actually. Because the mind's never stopping thinking about all the stuff you got to take care of. You also consume with how do you how do you make more money? The lover of wealth is anxious, eagerly watching the stock market, feverishly exploring how to get rich quick, tirelessly working to build wealth, to sustain what they have, and then more. This is wealth without God. And some argue, right? If you, if, and I know someone would say this. At least one person in here but maybe one person here wouldn't say this, and most people would. I'm just trying to make ends meet. I don't want to be wealthy. You know the question we never ask ourselves when we say, I'm just trying to make ends meet, is whether or not we should get different ends. Right? In contrast, Solomon says that the laborer's life, the person who just works, isn't trying to build wealth. He says he's content with God's daily provision. He's concerned only with having enough for the day and doesn't give wealth a thought as his head hits the pillow. That's what it says in verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. I don't know about you, but I like sleep. And I like what that experience sounds like. The truth is, there is actually no issue with making money. It's keeping it. That's the problem. It's hoarding it. That's the problem. God is not against making money. It's what you do with it. And why you're making it. Again, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 13, he says, there's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun where riches are kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches are lost in a bad venture. Describes his life. He's the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Here's your Mother's Day verse. As he came from the mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so I shall go. And what gain is there for him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. The rich guy. Sickness, anger, vexation, no sleep. Sounds miserable. 
Yet we all want a little, little more, don't we? I don't want to be wealthy. Those who love wealth, pursue wealth apart from God, find all of the security and joy and hope in wealth. The greatest fear is not to have enough. They build a foundation of their life upon their careers or their money or their lifestyle. And then what Solomon says, an unexpected storm comes and wipes it all out in one shot. Welcome to 2008. Remember that? The drop of the housing market and the stock market revealed a lot of people's foundations. It was a scary time for many. But what a single storm, a single stock market drop reveals is that money is not a very dependable savior. It's difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom because wealth seems, apart from those storms, to rescue us from a lot of difficulty under the sun. That's the allure of it. It does actually help us avoid some of the bad stuff under the sun. C.S. Lewis wrote, one of the dangers of having a lot of money is that you may be quite satisfied with the kinds of happiness money can give and so fail to realize your need for God. If everything seems to come simply by signing checks, you may forget that you are at every moment totally dependent on God. How true that is. I remember when Paul Allen died a couple years ago maybe now, a year ago, one of the wealthiest men in the world. And his wealth couldn't save him. That was my first thought. Guy had everything, every doctor, every, everything. Like, death comes to us all. How quickly we forget that none of our wealth follows us into death. Remember in the parable, Jesus had warned about the vaporedness of life. Cautioning those right who lay up treasures in heaven and aren't rich toward God. And regardless of your bank account, at your funeral, what will you be rich toward? He was rich in relationships. He was rich in money. He was rich in achievement. Will they consider you rich in God? Many of us are concerned with leaving a legacy. And I fear that most of that legacy is material that we think about. Echoing Ecclesiastes, Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Into a snare. Like you said, man, money seems so dangerous. Into a snare, right? A trap. Into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. So, summary, wealth without God is empty. It's pretty obvious. However, many of us, as we function, don't believe that. Even if that's just the heart disposition. Despite the Bible's warnings, we crave riches to have a little more we feel empty, and so we covet. 
to fill that emptiness. But let's not forget something that's hugely important. And I didn't think of this, but someone reminded me of this. I don't know where I was from. Sin entered the world when Adam and Eve decided they needed one more tree. And it wasn't just one more tree, right? It was one more tree than God had given. They had every other tree. They wanted a little bit more, or maybe just a little bit different. So as chapter 5 kind of closes, we enter 6 here, Solomon describes what it looks like to have wealth with God. And it's a beautiful picture, as opposed to wealth without Him. In He writes in verse 18, Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil that once toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. There's a place for joy to be found. Like I talk about somewhat jokingly how dark Ecclesiastes is, but echoed through all Ecclesiastes these little snippets of joy. You can find joy here. You can find joy here. There's a lot of places you can't find joy. So Solomon's like, behold, okay, Revelation, it is good to enjoy the life God has given. He doesn't want us to be miserable. He wants us to enjoy the good gifts that He has given us. He says, this is His lot. He has repeatedly taught that there is no gain in gain, no more in more, that nothing more gives the meaning you're looking for. But he doesn't just want us to go find, this is my lot. I'm just going to remain dissatisfied because I really would like this other lot. No, he says, I want you to be divinely satisfied in what you have and satisfied even in what you don't have to view everything as a gift. I don't say that's easy. But the alternative is to spend your time coveting and comparing, irritated, angry of what you don't have, and therefore robbing yourself of all the joy that you could. Psalm 16, King David, it's a beautiful phrase in his psalm. He said, the Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. He says, you hold my lot. And he says this, the lines, these are boundary lines. He says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. When is the last time you said that about your own life? I love the lines that have fallen for me, Lord. I have a beautiful inheritance. God has given us all boundaries. And we must choose to live within them, or at least choose how we're going to live within them, because I'll tell you right now, the boundaries aren't changing. So I've always been so appreciative of when the Israelites right, received their land. So if you know the story, right, each tribe, after they conquered the promised land, were allotted by lot. So they would draw straws or however they did it, and they would get boundaries of chunks of land. And if you have a map in the back of your Bible, you can see how it was allotted by the Lord. And when they received their land, I assure you, they didn't go, oh, Judah, 
Look what you got. I got this teeny little, you know, sliver over here, and you got this. They didn't do that. They were like, they've been waiting their whole lives. Something their parents didn't get to see and going, this is my, wow. It's like getting that first home, right? When you get that first home, you're not comparing to the mansion you didn't get. You're like, man, look at this shack. It's awesome, right? You love it. And the problem is, if you don't have that reaction, if you don't embrace the God-given boundaries that you've been given, whatever that is, that could be relationships, that could be job, that could be level of wealth, that could be where you live and what you have, everything that is included in your lot. If you don't rejoice over that, if you don't embrace that, you will spend most of your days comparing and bemoaning and trying to adjust them. Anything but finding them beautiful. We wrongly believe that we hold our lot when David clearly says God does. But Solomon says something really interesting here. He says that finding your lot beautiful isn't even in your power. Solomon not only says that our lot is a gift from God, he declares that the power to enjoy our lot is a gift from God as well. Verse 19 says, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept His lot and rejoice in His toil, this is a gift of God. Now, when they first started allotting the land in Israel, uh, there was a man named Caleb. Caleb was one of the two spies that had first gone in before they entered the promised land and said, hey, we should go take it. He and Joshua, ten spies said we shouldn't. They went with a bad report, and Caleb and Joshua were the only ones out of those men were approved and became leaders to go into the promised land. Happened 40 years after that moment, though. So after the land is conquered, Caleb is given a chunk of land. And the thing about it, when God blessed Caleb, he gave him a chunk of land, and his land was still full of some Canaanites from bad guys. And so Caleb's like, hmm, i got to clear my land of the rest of these bad guys. So he basically offers his daughter's hand in marriage, very princessy, kingly type of narrative tale, right? If you will conquer the rest of this land, you can have my daughter's hand in marriage. And so a guy named Othniel, who became the first judge, does that. And he marries his daughter. The crazy thing, you read this story in Judges, uh, I believe chapter 3. So his daughter's given in marriage, and they get their new home, and they get this gift of land as part of the marriage. But his daughter's not satisfied, which can be read poorly, but I don't want us to do that. So she goes to her dad about this land, these boundaries she's gotten, she's like, mm, I don't like this. She didn't really say it like that, but it makes it sound bad because I'm setting you up. Now, when she came to him, it says, she urged him to ask her father for a field and God for donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, give me a blessing since you've given me the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And so he gave her Upper springs and lower springs. 
So she has this land that's arid and kind of not great. And she asks for a blessing. He gives her springs of water on either side of this land. The land she had obviously is dry. It's undesirable. But you notice she doesn't ask her father to change the boundaries. She doesn't ask her father for different lands. She doesn't ask her father to increase her borders that she might have more. She actually asks him for something to make what she has more satisfying. Water. Give me water to make my land that I've been given more fruitful, more enjoyable, more beautiful. She asks not to increase her borders, but to have life in the borders that she has been given. When we talk about finding your lot beautiful and it being a gift of God, your prayer should be less about changing what you've been given and more of asking God to help you enjoy what you have. Because when you enjoy what you have, when what you have is beautiful and satisfying, you will not care about what you have not been given because you'll be so enamored with what you have. That's the gift of God. And so what do you do? You pray for that. But most of the time, you know what we're asking for? Change my borders. I like that guy's land. I wish my borders were shaped like this to include that. Instead of, Lord, help me to see the beauty in what I have. So if I have the desire to experience joy in my lot, what can I do besides beg God? Well, you can start there. But I would argue that enjoyment is also it's not only a gift, but it's something we can actually learn. Paul wrote about this from his jail cell in Philippians chapter 4. Writing from prison, he said this, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. The secret. There's a secret. See, when you learn the secret of contentment, we'll call it, because that's what he's talking about, whether he has plenty or his hunger, or he has more than needs or less than he needs. When you learn the secret of contentment, guess what? You are full of joy. Nothing feels empty, even if your bank account is empty. We all want to be content. That's why we pursue stuff, things, relationships, because we're discontent and we think that will satisfy us. No one who is content seeks those things. So he says, I've learned the secret of contentment. I love how Solomon describes the content person in verse 20 saying that this person who ultimately is with God in their wealth will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. Isn't that a beautiful verse? I don't even know what's going on in my life. I'm so joyful that it doesn't even matter. Well, who doesn't want that? Or I'm not even thinking about the hardships or the difficulty. I'm just like, man, I'm so full of joy. So Ecclesiastes pushes us towards Christ. It pushes us towards the Gospel as the only way to actually fill the emptiness that wealth can't satisfy. 
According to Solomon, he says in chapter 6 that there's nothing worse than a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honors so that he lacks nothing of all the desires, and yet God doesn't give him power to enjoy them. You see that with all kinds of celebrities and wealthy people who are clearly miserable. He says even though he has everything, in verse 3, he says his soul's not satisfied with the good things of life. He even says that he's a stillborn child is better than him. Man, that sounds horrible. Wealth with God is certainly better than wealth without God, but it's not the same as the contentment that comes from what I describe as wealth in God. Wealth in God is about viewing all that I have and all that I don't have with God, His grace, His generosity, His glory, His good purposes at the center of everything. Wealth in God is the pathway to receiving our lot as God's blessing and not God's punishment or withholding. It is the key to enjoying our lots, but more than that, it's the key to actually finding meaning for our souls. Because wealth with God, which does lead to joy, may not actually be enough if it doesn't have meaning. So what's the secret of soul-level contentment that Paul learned? Well, what was the next verse in Philippians? I've learned the secret, and it's the great verse that people put on their, you know, eyes for football and hold up signs. I can do all things, and your translation might say, through Christ who strengthens me. What's the secret? Christ! Christ is the secret to contentment, whether you have plenty or whether you're in poverty. The Gospel of Christ tells us some pretty crazy, countercultural, counterintuitive things. Like it is better to give than to receive. That it's better to empty yourself rather than to fill yourself. That it is better to seek God's kingdom than to build your own. He says that's the pathway to joy and to meaning. Paul actually tells young Timothy in one of his letters to flee from the love of money as if it's like chasing you. Like run from it. But you can't simply run from something. You have to run to something. In this case, we have to run to the cross. We have to actually learn Christ not just by talking about Him, by actually walking like Him. And so, let me give you just three basic ways to learn Christ. To to find, if you will, not just uh, joy, but actually meaning in your lot. First, quite simply, we avoid the emptiness of wealth through this crazy thing called radical thankfulness. Practicing radical thankfulness. That seems really practical. It is, actually. I think that's part of the problem sometimes. Maybe it's part of my problem. We stay, stay up here in big thought land. We don't get down to like, hey, what does this actually look like? We need to understand, the big thought is this, we only give what we've been given. The Apostle Paul asked the Corinthians, who thought they were all of that in a bag of tricks, right? It was like, 
What do you have that you didn't receive? What do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? We only give what we've been given. The cross of Jesus Christ actually reveals what we deserve. When when I and you, a rebellious traitor, deserved nothing but death, then you understand the beauty of grace and you understand that everything you have is more than you deserve. Everything. Anything is more than you deserve. And when you live perpetually governed by I have more than I deserve, you are going to naturally be radically thankful. And if you don't truly understand what you deserve, you don't understand the depth of your sin. But when you understand the depth of your sin, grace becomes incredibly beautiful. His forgiveness incredibly vast. His love, unconquerable. And therefore, we become thankful. Because every day, every dollar, every difficult moment, every detail of our lot becomes beautiful. And we have to move beyond sentiment. We have to move beyond the routines of thankfulness at meals. We have to move into this place where we're actually practicing thankfulness more than just counting our blessings, but seeing every single thing as a gift perpetually. There's a great video, wish I had it, that I saw at Christmas. I think some clever church put it out. And the guy was, he woke up in the morning and his whole body is wrapped in wrapping paper. And he busts out of it and he's like, I'm alive! And then he gets up and like the light switch is wrapped in. He's like, oh, what's this? And he opens it and turns the power on. He's like, we have power, right? And then he goes, it's like, and he has a coffee cup. And it's like wrapped in, and he's like, opens up coffee, right? He's like, and it's ridiculous, but it's also like very powerful. Because you're like, how many things that we just like dismiss? Like, yeah, my coffee's here. My car is here. My home is here. My kids are, you know, here. Like, everything's great. I think his kids actually walk in wrapped up. It's like, hey, we have kids, right? That kind of thankfulness. But that takes intentionality. But when we talk about being with God in wealth, you know what being radically thankful does? Keeps you in constant communication with God. Thank you, God, for this. Thank you, God, for that. Thank you, God, for that. Thank you, God, for that. You're with God. Radical thankfulness is the act of being with God in your lot. The second thing is we avoid the emptiness of wealth, I think, through the practice of radical generosity. And we give simply because of this. Yes, we've been given everything, but because Jesus gave us everything. 2 Corinthians 8-9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So these speaking to those who actually know the grace. That though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus, although richer than Solomon, loved us so much that he gave it all up, came to earth, died on the cross, therefore paying my debt, 
defeated both sin and death by rising from the dead and is now seated as King of kings and Lord of lords. And through faith, He gives us the richness of His righteousness so that we might be freed from what are bankrupt hearts. And it's those transformed hearts, those hearts who truly understand Christ's sacrifice, the depth of His generosity, who cannot help but sacrifice for others. You want to defeat the emptiness of wealth, the lies, the deceitfulness of riches? Give it away to help the genuine emptiness of somebody else. That will bring you joy. We, most of us, um, overestimate or misestimate, whatever word it is, how wealthy we are. And there are plenty of people around you whose lives are much emptier. And you could be a blessing to them with radical generosity. They're right in front of you. We just don't even plan about it. We don't think about it. Radical generosity is the act of going with Jesus and loving others as if they are Jesus. Without expectation. Isn't that what Jesus did? You realize... You can't pay back Jesus. He was so generous with you and He knew that you would never be able to reciprocate what He gave to you. And most of the time we're not generous is because we don't see personal benefit in it. We expect payback. We accept reciprocation. Generosity comes when first it hurts you because it's actual sacrifice and secondly, you don't expect to be paid back. That's gospel generosity. That's radical generosity. And that, in many ways, resolves the emptiness of wealth. Resolve someone else's emptiness with your wealth. See what it, how it impacts you. But lastly, and this is the part where I think we actually find meaning, because you can do both those things. You can be thankful in a very generic way to God and not be a Christian. You can be blessing people and giving your stuff away and not be a Christian. But the last part is about radical investing in the kingdom of God. And you're not going to do that if you're not a Christian. You're going to see a greater purpose in your giving. We give in this life because we recognize this life is not all there is and that we can actually make the investments for eternity in this life. Jesus poured most of his investments, if not all of them, into the next life. That's how he's governed. We don't work to be remembered by men as much as we most certainly want to be known and remembered by God. This is not doing God things, right? Okay, investing in the kingdom of God means I need to lead Bible studies, give lots of money to the church, and do X, Y, whatever it is you think that is. I would argue it's not just doing what you might categorize as God things. On the contrary, it's taking everything you already have and are thankful for and viewing it as a means to worship God. Not everyone has the same stuff. Not everyone has the same experiences. Not everyone has the same talent or treasure or time or even tragedy. But it's taking all of those things of your lot and saying, how is this going to be used to build God's kingdom? It is then 
when you give purpose to your giving, direction to your giving, whether it be your time or, or your talents or your treasure or even the trials you've had and you share those for the glory of God, that is when you find soul satisfaction. That is when you see meaning to everything that you actually have been given. That is when we begin to contribute to building the kingdom of God. What happens is you begin to produce what I think is a very faithful witness to the gospel. And a compelling invitation for those living under the sun. Because eventually when you're radically generous or radically thankful, people go, why are you so thankful? Your life sucks. Why are you so generous? You don't have anything. And you say, because of Jesus. And suddenly you're having a conversation revealing your motivation and your true hope that has nothing to do with this world. That's a faithful witness. And that's why we find meaning and purpose in radical investing. Those living under the sun start going, you, don't, you live under the sun with me, but you don't seem to be living for life under the sun. And you say, you're right. I'm living and investing for life beyond the sun. Radical investing is the act of tangibly building Jesus' kingdom using your lot. Now, I'll close with this, and I really mean it. I know I say that 17 times, but I really mean it. The last verse, we're at the halfway point of Ecclesiastes. Rick, really halfway. I know. Starts going fast. We're going big chunks. But we're at the halfway point. In verse 12, we'll end with this. He says, For who knows what is good for a man while he lives a few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Like, just brings us back to like, remember, your life is a vapor. So be thankful, be generous, invest. Don't fall for the seduction of success to love the gifts more than the gift giver, to worship the almighty dollar instead of almighty God. This will happen when we forget simple things like this life is all there is, it's not, and actually forgetting who I am in Christ. So I'll read a quote from John Piper and then pray. Who I think does a great job of going, this is who you are. If this is really who you are, then this is how you'll live. He says, if we are actually refugees and exiles on the earth, and if our citizenship is in heaven, if nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, and if His steadfast love is better than life, and if all hardships are working for us an eternal weight of glory, then we will give to the winds our fears and seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We will count everything as rubbish in comparison to Christ. We'll joyfully accept the plundering of our property for the sake of unpopular acts of mercy. We'll choose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin and we'll count the reproach of Christ, great, of Christ greater than the wealth of the treasures of Egypt. If we believe this, then we'll live like this. Remembering who you are in Christ should govern what you do, should govern how you view all that you have in this life because you're living for the next. Let's pray.